на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака поднимись и плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. We've been away for quite some time, with the obligatory long winter and a coronavirus outbreak forcing the suspension of all Russian football. First of all, after this highly difficult and traumatic time, we RFN hope that you and your families are all safe and well. But finally, the RPL is back. This different voice to the norm is editor-in-chief James Nichols stepping up to hosting duties. And with me is the usual suspect of David Sanson. Hello, David. Hello. And Andrew Flint. Hello, Andrew. Hello, guys. How are we doing? Glad. I'm great. But this week, finally, the RPL is back. And we'll be here to hear today. We'll be discussing week 23 and previewing each of the fixtures, catching you all up on the goings-on at the 16 RPL clubs during the long winter break. Firstly, however, I will quickly explain what will be happening this for the remainder of the season. The RPL will be playing a short round of fixtures to get the season finished, and matches will take place from this weekend all the way up to the 22nd of July. Then there'll be just a nine-day break before the 2021 season starts on the 1st of August. For this season only, the two teams will be relegated into their FNL, the promotion relegation playoffs from the FNL to the RPL have been scrapped entirely, and teams will be allowed to use five substitutes per game in order to combat fatigue. Kicking off festivities on Friday afternoon would have been Sochi and Rostov, but seems that there's more to meet the eye on that one, with Rostov unfortunately testing positive for six coronavirus te- uh, cases in the last round of testing. Andrew, I think you've got a little bit more on that one. Could you fill us in? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's um it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a downer on what should be a really really exciting few days. Um, like you say, the RPL have been waiting for a long time to come back, but six players have tested positive, and as per the Russian health authorities' recommendations um, and instructions, the entire well everybody had been in direct contact with, which is the senior playing staff, and I think it's up to 45 personnel in total, including coaches, have to go into a 14-day quarantine, so they cannot at all um, play any games. That's fairly obvious. Um, The problem is, what to do next? Um, And this is a game away to Sochi tomorrow. Uh, Sochi, of course, don't forget, back in, was it December, I think it was, they had a game postponed for an outbreak of a, a virus or illness, um, that was postponed until March, and they replayed that game. Um, Sochi want to play, Rostov don't, and we still don't know, less than 24 hours out, exactly what's going to happen. So um, we'll have to wait for confirmation of whether the game will be played of youth players, whether it will be postponed. I believe there is one reserve date, the 19th of July, and that's been chosen because it's the Russian Cup semi-final, and Sochi and Rostov are not involved in that. But um, we still don't know exactly whether that is what will happen. Now, ordinarily, you would just presume that the fixture would be postponed, obviously with Rostov now under a 14-day quarantine period. But that seems to have not been the case. Uh, with Sochi uh, protesting against any form mm-hmm. of postponement. Now, do you think that's a little bit of gamesmanship on Sochi's behalf? Just let's get the three points and... And out of the way and quick and easy win, try and stay up or even push up the table where they are now? <laughs> I mean, the, the silly thing is that Sochi are, well, I say on good form. They were in March. They're in much better shape. Um, Vladimir Fyodotov in charge is a, is a brilliant appointment. Um, they're looking really healthy. So I don't think relegation is really 
a major concern of theirs. I do think it's smacked of a little bit of self-centeredness almost, given, you know, like I mentioned, they had their own case uh, when they played Orenburg um, uh, back in December. And that was that was postponed for illness. Uh, and that was without these protocols. This is a protocol that has been, you know, it's been put in place and there is this reserve date that can be used. Um, so what needs to happen is, there, it's such a mess, this, I know, isn't it? But, you know, the two clubs have to agree. That's the only way they can actually use the postponed date. And the, the, at the moment, the last we've heard is they they seem to be at odds with each other and they don't see an agreement happening. And like I say, this has got to happen within, well, ideally, very, very soon tonight because Rostov have actually got to go to Sochi with somebody if they're going to play. Um, I don't know if it's gamesmanship, but I think Ros- uh, Sochi ought to take a long, hard look at themselves because they were granted this um, favour back in December. And I think they ought to be understanding at the very least. Now, there was a press conference on the matter today. And it seems that a resolution of some form, possible step towards a resolution, came from that press conference. I wonder if David, you could just fill us, fill us in on the press conference and what's what's developed from Rostov's end on that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Rostov obviously wanted to postpone the game initially, um, naturally, as you would when your entire playing staff is quarantined with six of your best players actually uh, testing positive with the virus. Um but with Sochi's seemingly uh, not willing to postpone, you know, they have said, I think Rostov has indicated they may be willing to play with their under-18s or reserve team who have got to go to Sochi anyway um, to play the end of uh, the reserve season. Um, and, you know, it's not the first time we might have seen something like that in the league. As I recall, a couple of years ago, Arsenal Tula played a whole youth team in a game uh not for a similar reason, obviously, but they did do that um, in protest of something else. They didn't play the whole first team. Um, it's not what you want to see, though. You know, it it goes beyond all sense as to why Sochi would not want to postpone this game. Um, it just shows a complete lack of sportsmanship. Um, and it's a shame that they're, they're, they're willing to go that way. But fair play to Rostov for willing to actually, you know, potentially send their kids down there to, to play out the match. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, if if Rostov are going to be forced to either concede the game or do what they can, they might as well just do what they can. It's, that's the best thing that they can do right now. And I, I totally agree on Sochi. I think it's just, it's it's terrible. It's quite disgusting behaviour from Sochi to take advantage in, of this situation. I mean, it's, it's very traumatic, the COVID-19 case, and everybody suffered from it. Sochi themselves as footballers some would have had families or friends who have at least suffered having to stay at home at the very least hopefully so that to just fly in the face of what's going on in the world at the moment and just take advantage of that is just if i'm honest it's very sochi i mean my feelings on sochi are quite well known is that i don't like <laughs> how they moved dina was in petersburg i don't like how yeah. boris rotenberg is allowed to run a football club after what he done at dinamo moscow i don't like the fact that it's not really a city it's just an f1 track with a big big air uh, Olympic Stadium, <laughs> but aside from that, it's it's just depressing more than anything that once again we've got an issue which has been not resolved. Yes, coronavirus is an outstandingly peculiar thing to happen in the world, but we're a day from the game and there's still no resolution whatsoever. And Rostov still have no idea, and Valery Karp and the manager still has no idea whether he has to prepare players for the game or not. 
whether it can be replayed or if they've just basically lost three points due to something completely out of their control. So it's it's just very only in Russia, but if for the lack of organisation to deal with it, I don't know what you think, David. It's odd um, that the Premier League can't take control of the situation. Like the Premier League have stepped in and said, well, yeah, we can postpone the game, but both parties have to, you know, uh, volunteer to do so. It is strange that the Premier League can't come in and say, right, that game is postponed. We'll come back in two weeks' time. It it it, it does. It seems odd that the Premier League can't take control of the situation, and Sochi can sort of renege and go go a bit awol um, against Rostov and the Premier League. Um, so yeah. Strange one. Yeah, it's I, 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 I'll be honest, I agree with you, David. I think the, the worst of all of this is the fact that nobody seems to have a clear idea of what the plan was in the first place. Because if you're going to bring back uh, Premier League into action in a country that has had a huge number of cases um, of, of the virus, to not have a standard protocol for if something like this happens, because we weren't to know exactly where it might come back or where some place may contract it, but it was always a possibility. How there wasn't a very clear directive. Um, although having said that, what I will say is there, there was. That's not quite true. There was a directive, except like you just explained, the directive left it open for both clubs to either agree or not agree. And that in itself is not the right directive, in my opinion. It should have been very clear that if there is a uh, a quarantine that is enforced on a club by this example, um, that it should be moved to a later date. Having said that, I think this demonstrates one painful point that we're all we haven't mentioned yet is that whether this is the right time to be coming back at all or not. Personally, I think unfortunately this demonstrates that it just is too early, um, but. You know, we'll have to see how it goes. Hopefully, I'll find a resolution and and we can uh, safely move on. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think it is too early. Personally, from a complete health point of view, away from all football, because from a personal perspective, I'm delighted football's back and being able to watch it, but it's not really football. And at the end of the day, that's not what's important right now. What's important is safety. Six players from Rostov got the infection. I mean, six is quite a large number, but it's not just that. They'll have, they'll have to self-isolate and the rest of the team is now unable to play. Well, what about the under-18s? They share the academy, they share the same facilities. Where could where could this not end? I mean, I just I just think it is it is all a little bit too early, but it's the yeah. the money in it, the money in the game all over the world nowadays. They're, they're, it was inevitable that they would bring the sport back. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I, think, I think part of it is this rush to return to normality when in it, the truth is that normality as we know it is not really going to be here for I would say at least a couple of years even if we have recovered and we have a second wave and we get over that there is still going to be sort of a, a gradual should at least be a gradual de-escalation of um, precautionary measures so I mean they've even even the Russian Premier League today have said that it is extremely likely that we won't be able to have full fans into the stadiums until next calendar year. Um, and that's that's ambitious at that. So I think this rush to get football back is, is, is a little bit odd. I think finishing the season is right, but finish it when it's safe. Um, Cancelling the season, I think, is a terrible idea. Um, if we have to wait, we have to wait, um, but only, only when it's safe. But... You know, we'll have to wait and see what, what they dish up for us tonight or tomorrow. 
Yeah, certainly. I, I, I agree that waiting until it's safe is paramount, but unfortunately, the games are fortunately the games are here for us, for football fans. Unfortunately, health-wise, they haven't been delayed. And next up on Friday would have been Krylia Sovietov and Akhmat Golozny down in Samara. Uh, the two sides were going to kick off festivities. Uh, they currently occupy the relegation zone at the minute with Akhmat on 20 from 22 games and Krylia on 22 points from 22 games themselves in 15th and 16th. Uh, David, can you catch us up on the two sides and has there been any big ingoings, outgoings during the, the long break at all from either Akhmat or Krylia? Um, no, I don't think uh, either side have had any sort of fireworks going on as far as I'm aware. Um, no players from either side's um have come down with the virus. I think overall in the Premier League, we've seen um, over a dozen cases, not including the six from Rostov from today, um, of players who got diagnosed. Um, a couple of players left um, Kulia Sovietov at the end of their contracts, uh, midfielder Mijalovic and uh, goalkeeper Konyakov. And they had um, the Zenit legend Alexander Anyukov uh, decided to retire and not come back for the remainder of the season. And uh, he's gone back to to pick up a coaching role at Zenit where he spent the majority of his career. Um, so no, nothing nothing big going on at either of the sides. Um, uh, from seeing some of the Cordelia players on the social media, they've been they've been uh, training um, separately, certainly for a few weeks, and have obviously moved into uh, group training again in, in more recent times. Um, so in theory, both teams should be quite well prepared for the game tomorrow. Um, and obviously, it is a big game since they're, they're, they're occupying the bottom two places. Yeah, first of all, I would just like to mention, I mean, Alexander Anikov has been a great sort of servant of Russian football. I think when of yourselves mentioned that it's it's currently his 20th season in, in Russian football, which is just quite an incredible achievement, even though arguably the last five or six of them have been from a pretty poor standard. <laughs> but uh, from a, from one poor standard to another, um Ramzan Kadyrov, the the crazed lunatic, his his Akhmat are actually bottom of the table right now. This is a big relegation battle game, but it could actually only be one of the two teams going down because the as things stand, they will both be relegated. But um, as I can tell, Andrew, we've got information that perhaps only one of the two could be due to licenses of certain clubs in the Fener L. Oh yes, we're we're at that time of year again, aren't, aren't we, James? Where it's a complete lottery as to who actually is going to be promoted and relegated. We go through this circus every time, and <laughs> the 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 main the main problem is it largely revolves around money. In most cases, some clubs just simply cannot afford to be promoted. It sounds absolutely crazy to say that, but uh, in the, in the Fenial, we've got um, uh, Hinky who finished second. They are due a place. They have, as as I, as I understand, they have applied successfully for a Russian Premier League license, but also a Fenel second tier license, and are yet to decide um, which division they actually want to be in. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned at the top of the show, we're, we're, there's only going to be two places maximum. Um, if Hinky, as the second place team in the second tier, choose not to go up. Only one team will go down, uh, as you say. Um, so, Himki, well, I mean, they, they have one of the worst stadiums in Russia. So I had to get that in. Um, I just I just can't stand that stadium. It's so exposed. It's an awful, awful access. Um, 
and it has a terrible atmosphere. But that aside, um, it, it's a sad indictment of Russian football in a way, uh, and I'm not entirely sure what the answer is, that clubs so frequently turn down the chance for promotion, not just to the second tier, but up to the Premier League, like we're seeing. We're seeing a reluctance to, to, to jump at the chance. So, like you mentioned, Krilia, Akhmat, um tomorrow is an absolutely huge game. The significance is, is enormous. And it does look like it will only be the one place. So, for Akhmat, the onus is on them. They're actually not quite as bad away from home as you might imagine. Uh, they've only lost once in the last four games away from home. Uh, and if they get a win against Krilia, Krilia themselves have only won once at home since July. So neither of them really have particularly favourable statistics. But if anything, Akramat possibly slightly more so. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but if Akramat could get a win, then it puts serious pressure on a team with a World Cup stadium, which um, I think we all know is something that uh, nobody in Russian football, in the authorities anyway, wants to see. They don't want to see a second-tier team with a World Cup stadium. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, certainly, without a doubt. I think that comes into a lot of why the football authorities are, let's say, in quotation marks, kind to Sochi as well. They're desperate for any of these stadiums not to become white elephants, and understandably so, with the amount of money that was spent on them. But as you said there, Krilia have struggled this season, especially away from home. During the winter break, obviously, the lost leading goalscorer and arguably best player this season so far, Alexander Sobolev, to Spartak Moscow. Now, that was six months ago because of the coronavirus outbreak. But in that time period, Krilyev only got worse and worse. David, do you think that they could stay up this season, maybe? Or even on the back of, even if they do win this weekend, do you think they, they could stay up? Or is it too much of a struggle losing their best player? I think, uh, I, I think personally, they'll, they'll be all right. I think there are teams above them um, whose form is, who form is and was worse. Um and I think uh, certainly Orenberg, who we'll come on to later on, I think I could see them slipping down. You know, they're only a point above Krulia as it stands. I think I could see them slipping down. I just I just feel Krulia have probably got what it takes to just, you know, grind out a few wins, uh, a few points here and there, and just uh, manage to stay up, certainly above 15th. Um, yeah, I just have, I just have a feeling they'll be, they'll be all right. I know, um, obviously, they, they did lose Sobolev. Um, and didn't really replace him. I think they just kept going with Radonjic up front. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've got a feeling they'll be all right. Now, I did notice that when you picked a team who's perilously close to the drop that Krilia could catch is, that like you said, Orenberg, but not not mm. uh, Ruben Kazan. Now, funnily enough, next up's the proper <laughs> RFN derby. As Andrew's beloved Ural hosts David's own Ruben and Katerinberg on Saturday lunchtime. Now, I think I might have to separate you two here at some point, but... Ruben will win. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm worried about this one. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I was planning on going to this game, but I'll be honest, partly because of what we mentioned earlier. And there was a... Well, David will confirm the latest on this, I'm sure. But um, Rubin player Alexander Zuyev was said to be ill. Um, some sources have said different types of illness. And I personally don't want to take the chance, so I won't be going. But Oral are defensively appalling. Um, and it really, since since they lost um, 
since they lost, um, my mind's gone blank, uh, Stefan Strandberg, sorry, on loan. He was brilliant last year. This time last year, he was absolutely fantastic. But Oralov conceded more than anybody else in the league. And it permanently looked like a goal's going somewhere. Mikhail Merkelov has left to join Rubin, um, the traitor. Um, Nikolai Dimitrov has retired. He's um, stayed in his native Bulgaria for um, business interest, apparently. Uh, Petrus Brumal is still not signed a, a contract extension. I believe he, he was actually in training. Um, I saw the pictures anyway. Um, but he doesn't look like he's sticking around, so we're all looking in trouble. Rubin, and I will say this, David will certainly agree, I'm sure, um, Rubin, for me, have looked far better than their numbers suggest. Um, not scoring many, um, but they look much more dangerous than most people would imagine. So if Odal get a point, I'll be happy in this one. Yeah, Didn't so no Europe on the cards this season for Ural and Andrew? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Europe's Europe's nailed on. We're getting we're going to win the Russian Cup, beats any five 0 in the final. Um, so that's no worries for me. <laughs> Just overcome that big seven one defeat last time. Now, David, on Ruben, are you worried at all about any form of relegation? I mean, they've done some pretty terrible form right now. They've got one of the lowest goal scorers. If they are the lowest goal scorer in the league so far, with only twelve goals, and they've got and they're one point ahead currently of Krilia in the relegation places. So worried, or will you turn it around with Slutsky now in charge? I think uh I think I'd been slightly worried. Our form has certainly picked up um you know, we'd we've only lost one out of the last five and but granted uh drawn most of the rest and scored very little in that time. Uh, you know, we invested heavily in the winter transfer window and we never really got a chance for everything to sort of really start showing. And we won the last game we played uh, before the winter break away at Arsenal Tula, which is a difficult place to go. So that was at least promising that we managed to get a win away from home at a difficult place. Um, but yeah, um, I have a feeling, well, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic in my own heart that Ruben will be fine. There's definitely the talent there to do it. And we've got a cracking manager in charge as well in Slutsky. You know, we've got a squad full of good young players and the odd bit of experience dotted in there. And I just hope, hope that um, we can pull through and, you know, what way to start than an easy win away at Ekaterinburg, you know. <laughs> it's uh, it's not but too it's... bad, but both, as Andrew's saying, you know, both teams have been affected here by uh, COVID. I know Pavel Pogreniak was uh, in hospital for Ural yeah. um, for quite a while with um, pneumonia as a result of coronavirus, and Ruben have had at least five players who have tested positive for antibodies, and obviously there was the rumours recently of uh, Zuyev as well. So, um, no, the, some bad. The one thing Ruben teams. always has on their side is is, is youth. And Slutsky's a very good manager, getting the best out of youth players. Yeah. Just look what he's done with Golovan, look what he's done with... Even some of the smaller names, like Katak Kasanov, has probably played his best football at Suska under him. Now, Ruben have got lots of very strong youth players, arguably some of the most promising youngsters in the division. I mean, Sorokin's obviously left now, Ilya Sorokin left, went to Krasnodar. But they still have the Georgian wingers, uh, Zuriko and... Man who escapes my name, David, you can pronounce it much far far better than I. Uh, even Ignatiev, uh, Stahlfeldt. So, do you think that this sort of youth could bail you out of it and Slutsky will get them playing a bit better? Well, certainly the bright light this season has, has been the Georgian wingers uh, Zuriko Davitashvili and Kvitsa Kvaratskelia. Just getting the pronunciations <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah, Kvitsa and Zuriko, as they're, as they're known, they're, they're both excellent little players. Um, you know, they both yeah. only turned 19 in the win- during the winter break. Um, 
they're two of the most heavily used teenagers in the league, just behind uh, Igor Deveyev at Siska Moscow, who has just turned 20 as well. Um, and yeah, any game, they're usually the bright spark for Rubin. Um, so you're just waiting for them to get on the ball, and they're very direct, pacey little wingers, good good on the ball. You're just hoping they get on the ball and drive at players. And uh, yeah, that's certainly going to be one of our main attacking threats. Um for the rest of the season, as like you say, you know, we've got players dotted around the whole team. Even Ignatiev scored his first goal for Rubin um, after signing from Krasnodar just before the winter break against Arsenal Tula. So, um, so yeah, hopefully Slutsky can, has used this time well. You know, we've essentially had a six-month winter break with a few games in the middle. Um, so hopefully he's managed to use this time well to get the team gelled and, then pl- and playing better um, with each other. And uh, yeah, yeah, a nice, easy first game back. I do think that Ruben miss a little bit more of that sort of veteran experience to kind of complement the the youthful exuberance. But I do, if if you look through the side, I think the the quality is there. If they can just get that sort of knack going and hopefully get Ignatiev scoring, get him playing on the shoulder and his strengths, and uh, get sort the goals problem out, and it, it it should kind of be fine. I mean, they don't have the sort of calamitous defending that you see from Ural week in week out. But <laughs> <laughs> you did say that Ruben beat Arsenal away in the last game before the. An unfortunate COVID break, but oh, the stop and play. Now, next up are actually Arsenal Tula, Spartak Moscow. Uh, Arsenal holds host the kind of elite Russian crazy down Spartak on Saturday too. <laughs> and Tedesco himself, the Spartak manager, is kind of desperate to salvage anything from the Red Whites this season. Can either of you, I'll start with yourself, Andrew, can you really see Spartak doing anything and salvaging anything from the season or is it just going to be more chaos? Well, I mean, as a as a Spartak man, I, I totally understand you're you're slightly um, pessimistic. But honestly, I know this is going to sound weird. Since Tedesco's taken over, he's had ten games in charge. He's only won four, lost four, and drawn two. But I've been very, very impressed with what he's done. When he took over, I was particularly surprised at the length of his contract, only one and a half years, and I, that rang alarm bell straight away for me. Um, but, you know, you've got to bear in mind, the guy's only 34. Um, he's a young, very, very talented coach. And he did come with a bit of a negative football reputation. But I, I, I've seen something very different. When I was at Spartak uh, against Dynamo at the beginning of March, and Spartak were absolutely immaculate. The game plan was perfect. The players knew what they were doing. He trusted uh, Alex Kral to be a, a sole defensive midfielder, and he was he was the man of a match by a mile. And that included a team that included uh, Zelenkran Bakayev, who for me is arguably the most dangerous runner with the ball, or one of them in the league. Um, so he he said, "Look, we I'm going to get them playing the right way. That's my priority." You got to also remember Niall Umyarov. Um, he he was injured for for some of this season as well. I don't know if he's even back from injury yet. So that's going to be a pleasant headache um, for Spartak to have. I genuinely think it's going to be very interesting to see between Spartak and Dynamo who is going to push Tiska closest. Because I think Tiska are, although they're six points ahead of Dynamo and eight points ahead of Spartak, I, I can see that gap closing very, very quickly. Um, and Spartak would be a very dangerous side. They could do well in the Europa League if they make it. Yes, I mean, and, and for, I think Onyarov is unfortunately still out with his Achilles tendon problem. It's been quite, quite bad, and he, he did get that just in the sort of the restart after the winter break for the quick few games. But I do, I do agree that I think 
Spartak have got a very strong spine of the team. If you look through, you've got people like Samuel Ojijo, Jikia, uh, Kral, uh, and then Bakayev and Sobolev up front, obviously moved from Krilia. It is a very strong spine around that. And if they get playing to the best of their ability, which is always the question with Spartak, they could do some danger this season. But once, like I said, that it, it's Spartak Moscow. It's it's another thing saying that they have great strength on paper, when in theory they can't even string a pass together at times. <laughs> but <laughs> Kral has been a huge, huge benefit so far this season. He's probably, for me, been Spartak's strongest player. I think he's the perfect sort of defensive midfielder with that keen mobility yeah. that allows Roman Zobnin to stop getting bogged down in midfield as much. Zobnin has not been the same player since his long injury layoff, but because of that, since he's came back from the injury, because of Fernando's departure, he's been playing in the deepest holding midfield role often, more often than not. And that is not Zobnin's game. He's box to box. He's all about making those runs up and down. He's all about covering as much ground as possible and getting into the game as often as possible, no matter where it is. Now, he got sent off in the last minute against Krasnodar, which was ridiculous, really, from himself. But he did score against Dinamo, in the fight, and also in the last minute as well, I think. But he was, he was brilliant against Dinamo alongside Kral. And Kral really sort of brought the best out in him. But as you say, I'm, I'm a Spartak man and I'm constantly pessimistic <laughs> when, when the league is 17 years for a reason. And that reason is usually Spartak themselves, <laughs> shooting themselves in the foot. But and Spartak really have had a quiet a quiet break as well, apart from two big main, big main things, is that Lorenzo Melgarejo and Andre Scherler were both out of contract at the end of the season and due to the COVID, neither of ex- have signed an extension and they've lost them both. Now, Melgarejo was in and out of the team. He was more involved in the Tedesco than previously, but not the biggest miss. Scherler, in theory, I mean, when he played, he was great. When he, when he was brilliant, he, he changed games just on, on the turn of his head himself. But he was injured. He's been injured for quite a while now and Spartak didn't expect him to come back from, from that, so they just released him on his contract and he wasn't going to sign a new one anyway. I think he was going to be moving back away from Russia. So I do think the two will miss overall in terms of squad depth, but Spartak's own actual start in 11 it won't make much of a difference. But I still, I can't, I can't jump on this sort of optimist <laughs> Optimism bandwagon, if I'm honest. Think... I'm going to have to stay pessimistic still. David, what's I think your they've thoughts? got a tough job. Because we're assuming that, um, well, currently, obviously, the top five of the European places. And uh, the gap between fifth and sixth is six points where Dinamo sit in sixth. Uh, and obviously, Spartak are another two points behind that. So that's eight points they've got to get up to fifth. Now, obviously, if sixth comes into play and Zenit or Spartak, or if Zenit, because let's be honest, Spartak are the only, are not going to win the cup. If Zenit win the Russian cup, uh, then sixth opens up, and then Spartak have a potential other route into Europe, and you've got you'll then have an interesting four or five way race for that spot into Europe with Dinamo, Arsenal, Spartak, Ufa, and potentially even Ural, all sort of within a five point gap chasing for it. So they can't they can't take the foot off the brake. They've got to keep running and keep going for it, and uh, hope perhaps if you know if 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 fifth is out of place, you know gaining eight points in eight games. Um, then they've got a hope that they can go for sixth and get into Europe via the back door, basically. Uh, it'll be their last chance to do it, obviously, as Russia have lost their their place in the coefficients after a poor season in, in European competitions. Um, so, yeah, they, they should um, not take the fourth the break, keep going for it, and uh, hopefully uh, they can be led by by Tedesco and certainly Bakayev on the pitch um, to 
to make that last push for Europe. I think I think they'll yeah. have a sneaky sneaky good chance at it. Yeah, we we do discuss spot attack, but they're actually behind Arsenal Tula in the table right now. Do you not, do you think Arsenal could possibly push for that position, or likewise is it just too too big of a points gap, David? Well, I th- I think for, I think for Spartak certainly pushing for pushing for sixth or pushing for fifth sorry is out of out of the question. But if sixth opens up, then as I say, um, I think even Dinamo pushing that six point gap up to Siska will be tough. You you fancy Siska um, to be able to hold on uh, and keep that gap away, but you know anything can happen. They've they've got a young squad and the, their form has been up and down, but you'd still sort of back them with Goncharenko just to pull out the stops they usually have a decent spring when you look back historically um so i think it will be uh i think the top five will stay as it is in terms of clubs the positions may all swap around and uh, we have a potential race for sixth yet again um if the cup goes to if the cup goes to zenit that's the only way that it will go it will go that way so spartak will have to rely on zenit for a big favor if they want to get into europe this year it's ironically a little bit of that, that race for sixth is kind of like a Yevgeny Lutsenka own career battle with former club Dinamo currently in sixth with 30 points and current club mm. Arsenal down in seventh with 28 and he's got, what, nine goals and two assists this season, which is just, personally, I thought that would be unheard of and Lutsenko's always been a solid target man, but not 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 known for a goal scorer whatsoever. Andrew, what do you think? Do you think he's, how do you think, how do you feel about Lutsenko and Arsenal's chances? Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned Lutsenko because I was looking at all the numbers um, in the build-up to this week and this is his second highest scoring season of his career in the league anyway. He's, he's, the highest he ever scored is 10. Um, and his, some of his finishes have been absolutely outrageous. I mean, he's been uh, absolutely on fire. But in terms of Arsenal's prospects as a team, uh, I really have absolutely zero faith in them holding off Dinamo or Spartak. Um and the, the thing you've got to mention, you've got to remember as well, if you look just at the table, the numbers, the chances of, for example, OK, Arsenal Tula catching Tisca, I don't think they do have the strength and depth or the quality overall. But the thing with Tisca is that they have some quite tricky fixtures to come. They, they've got, we'll come to their game um, first up in a moment uh, against Zanit. That's a tough one. They've got to play Dynamo away, Spartak at home. Um They've got to play Lokomotiv on the penultimate weekend of the season. All of those are very, very tricky games. Um, so I think there's potential for Arsenal to possibly look at the fixtures and think, you know what, let's give this a go. We might get sixth. We might get fifth even. But I just don't think they've got the quality to do it. So, um, I mean, I've got nothing against Arsenal to uh, but I just don't think they're as, in as good a shape as Dynamo or Spartak for that matter. Yeah, and I don't think they've strengthened enough. I mean, Spartak haven't strengthened as much, but they, like they say, the, the quality they've got is already there. Dinamo have strengthened quite strongly, and we'll come to that pretty soon with, with some signings that they made during the winter break. And But then, moving on from from that, you mentioned Siska and the difficult games coming up. Next up would be the probably the big game of the weekend, aside from Ural Rubin, of course, is that Siska hosts, hosts Zenit St. Petersburg, the current league leaders. The last time they played each other in the RPL, there was like a it was just a so out of drab 1-1 draw. But in pre-season, Zenit actually came from 2-0 down to win, thanks to the usual suspects, Zuber and Asmoon. Now, I say pre-season, it wasn't really a pre-season, but we get the gist. <laughs> now, 
Yeah. Andrew, do you think this would be a difficult game for Cisco at home to Zenit? Presume, presumably so. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to to say anything otherwise. I mean, Tisca have really been inconsistent this season. And I'm a big, big fan of how Gontrenko has given real faith to young players and built them up into way more than probably anybody expected. And But they have been inconsistent. Alan Zagoyev has got a, an injury yet again. Um, I Honestly, I've written him off as a player now. I just don't see... I don't think there's any point in Tisca um, keeping faith with the man staying fit for longer than five minutes. So... So that's a waste of time. Uh, it was like Akhmatov's had surgery on his knee, I think it is, or his leg. Um, so he's out of action too. So that's going to be two, well, certainly Akhmatov, but Zagorov as well, two big losses. Well, um, Zanita's an ease, aren't they? You know, they're just a machine. Um, highest goal scorers, they conceded the least, they've won the most games, and they've got Zuba and Asmoon up front. They just, everywhere you look, it points to high scoring. Uh, wins. However, there is one curiosity about Zanit. They are they are the machine, like I mentioned, but they've only won twice in the last 11 games in Moscow uh, in the league. So perhaps Tiska will say, right, this is a slightly more level playing field. You know, it's a different thing without the atmosphere of the fans. I think actually part of Tiska's problems is the pressure that their own fans put on them. Because the atmosphere in the VEB arena is absolutely electric. For me, it's almost pound for pound the best atmosphere in the league with the acoustics and the fans and the noise they make, the atmosphere they build. And I think perhaps that gets to them. But I can't see anything other than a Zanit win here. I really, really can't. Um, it may end up just petering out into a draw. Um, because a, a number of their games have been drawn against the big clubs for Zanit. But I think this is, this is too much for Tisca. I, I don't think they're going to get anything from this at all. I think Zanit will yeah. win. I, th- I think a lot of those issues are just purely from the age of the squad. It's it's all well and good having a lot of youthful exuberance, but I think Siska just a little bit like Ruben balance that don't balance that out well enough. There's just far too many players with, well, at least this season, haven't had enough experience in the game. Find it difficult yeah. when dealing with adversity of being behind, dealing with when the, when everything's not going their way, possibly in an intense and sort of intimidating atmosphere. That's natural. That a lot of that comes with experience. Both Goncharenka and a lot of his players are inexperienced at the highest level. I think one other thing to remember as well is it's not just the, the lack of experience, but it's also the lack of competition in key areas. Fyodor Chalov, I think, has suffered basically from the weight of expectation. And he's he's the only strike, realistic striker they've had for a while. They brought in Ilya Shkurin, who I think looks a good player. Scored a lot in Belarus, but that's... I'm not trying to be rude. Well, I am being rude, but you know, I don't mean to cause offence. But um, and yeah, I don't know if you guys how deeply you believed it, but we saw Wagner Love come quite close to returning to Tisca as a 36-year-old. I think he is. Now he's a legend. He'd be popular, but is he really the answer? In a weird way, he might have been because he would at least have taken the weight off Charles' shoulders, but. I think it's the lack of that competition that has cost them up front because you know, we saw Chalov top goal scorer two seasons ago and he scored, what, five goals, I think it is, this season? Six goals, maybe. Um, and he looks a shadow of himself. We know he's a great player, but I think there's just too much focus on him, too much pressure on him. So take that off him and perhaps you'll see them flourish a little more. Certainly. And I think that's, although the pressure, the high pressure is, I think just a... A problem of the club's own making, and this, the, the links to Wagner Love. I mean, we would all 
love it. Hey, if he came back and was brilliant, and Siska especially, he is a genuine legend at the club, as he said. But I think the link to Wagner Love in 2020 is just indicative of Siska's problems in general. Now, on to Zenit. The, as you said, the, the, the strike force is the machine. Not just Zenit is the machine, that strike force, uh, Zuber and Asmoon. Uh, but they could possibly be split up in the nearish future, David. Have you heard much on that? Well, yeah, I think uh, I think everyone's seen the rumours. Both both players have been linked away to various clubs. Um, Juba's contract is, as far as I'm aware, up in the summer, and um, with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, there there are reports that you know free transfers are going to be like gold dust this season, and uh, therefore Juba could well be of interest to many many clubs around the continent, let alone just in Russia. Uh, I think it'd be madness for Zenit not to renew his contract, but obviously a lot relies on the player. I think he's previously announced his intention or desire to play in the Premier League at a good level, obviously not just at you know Bournemouth or something. Uh, no, just Bournemouth. Uh, but he 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 certainly has announced that he'd like to play abroad. And I think if uh, I think if the option came around to say um, someone sent me a link to an article uh, saying that Spurs had looked at him previously um, in January. And I think if Spurs realistically did go for him, I think he would certainly accept that. Um, so maybe he's just going to keep uh, keep things waiting uh, and see and see what happens. But I think uh, as a duo, I mean, Asmoon and Asmoon and Juba were obviously fantastic together. Um, and if Asmoon was to go anywhere, he's been linked to um, uh, Napoli and uh, Arsenal, amongst other clubs. Um, but but you just wonder how he would work without. Without Zuba, you know, this is um, his best goal-scoring period in his entire career has come at Zenit. You know, at Rostov and Rubin, he'd had good goal-scoring seasons, but none as good as this. And uh, he looks he looks a fantastic foil for Zenit, and he's a proper goal. Uh, penalty box striker, I want to say, sort of like Fox in the Box, Franny Jeffers style. Um, you know... You, you don't, you can't, you can't envisage Asmoon taking a pop shot from twenty-five yards. He's just always in the box there for the finishes that yeah. need to be done, and he's obviously fantastic in the air, as we all know by now. Um, and yeah, they just work as fantastic duo, and obviously they've got a great midfield behind them with Drewsi, uh, as Doyev, sort of the creators in there with Barrios as the destroyer in the middle, having a great season. Um, so I'm with Andrew. I think Zenit will. We'll sweep uh, Siska here. I, I think back to Siska at home earlier in the season uh, where they got absolutely turned over by Rostov and Shamorodov especially. Um, mm. uh, and if Siska are going to start Vadim Karpov, who 17 years old, Gontarenko's given him a lot of faith this season. But I think he's been wildly out of his depth, unfortunately. And I don't know why he's not seen that and given minutes to Magnussen, who's often sat on the bench, or even Vassian, who's often sat on the bench instead of him. Uh, if if Karpov starts against Zubra and Asmoon, it could be an absolute whitewash. Um, so hopefully Goncharenko doesn't do that just for more more for Karpov's sake rather than anything else. Um, Definitely, but I don't think it's going to be good, especially with Akhmetov out injured as well. Um, you know, Siska have been led by Vlasic, who's had another good season, obviously, um, with with Chalov having a disappointing one, unfortunately, up front. Um, they, ne- I think, Cisco really, really never recovered from the loss of uh, Rodrigo Becal, who had a fantastic season last last year out the Brazilian, but he was only alone. They could get it done permanently, and then he's gone off to play um, in uh, Udinese and Serie A. And I think yeah, they, they've struggled to replace him. 
like that with Karpov, that's once again where just the sort of the danger of overplaying youth, especially at such mm-hmm. an early age. Mm-hmm. He just looks out of his depth, and that's not that's not even trying to criticize him whatsoever because I think he does look like a very promising defender. He's just at times a boy playing against men in a very physical yeah. and very defensive league. And their track record's good, you know. When you look at other players they bought through and taking risks on, like they bought in Deveev last year at the same, like last January on loan from Ufa, and he he'd barely played a single game at the RPL, and now he's a regular for Cisco week in week out and, and one of their best players, and he's just turned twenty. Yeah. So it's just it's just a risk I think that's not paid off yet. Maybe he'll come along in in another year or so, but it, it's just not working for him, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's too early for Karpov. Personally, I, I really rate Deveev at Cisco as well. I think he's going to be a very exciting prospect, and I would love to see him get more Sponaya minutes as well. And funnily enough, Deveev is another one who came just like Oncharenko from Ufa. And Ufa are next up as they play Tambov on Sunday. And the both of the clubs have, go, have been undergoing quite a few turbulent couple of months. Now, Ufa have been surprisingly, maybe, linked to a takeover bid. David, I wonder if you wanted to elaborate on this Ufa takeover saga. Yeah, um, it sort of came out uh, towards the end of May, I think, um, reports that Ufa had, from their own perspective, gone out and started negotiations to find investments uh, with Red Bull, uh, who obviously own Red Bull Salzburg, Red Bull Leipzig, New York Red Bulls, and uh, City Football Group, the the overarching group who own Manchester City, uh, amongst many other clubs, including a, a New York branch and Sydney. Uh, oh, no, not Sydney, Melbourne, I think it is. Um, so yeah, that was a surprising development. I think there had been rumours earlier in the season linking Red Bull to Spartak and Ufa were mentioned earlier on uh, alongside the Spartak stuff. Um, but the uh, general director there at Ufa, Shamil Gazizov, has always been renowned for for being a very fine workman and he's he's uh, gone out to try and find investment. Um, the club's owned by the state, so it wouldn't be a full purchase, but Ufa want to take their club to the next stage and um, they're doing so by by trying to find investment in two of the biggest football corporations in the world, which uh, would certainly be an interesting development um, for a, for a small Russian provincial club. But you know their track history uh, with transfers and the and the like. You know when their their track record of bringing through players like Obliakov, Diveyev, and of course Zinchenko is now at Manchester City um, must make them an attractive target enough for you know Red Bull and City Football to actually enter negotiations rather than just you know waving them away. Yeah, I mean, to, to the majority of the world, uh, the potential of seeing a Red Bull Ufa or a Ufa City football club is is probably a little bit bizarre at best. But for those who know Ufa, they know that the football club is a very attractive proposition. It's it's the way and the way it's being run, the way the academy and the, the training facilities are being run, what they can do with such little resources. Now, Andrew, what, why do you think that these two big sort of footballing conglomerations if you could even use that term have been interested in Ufa yeah it, it is a strange one uh, at first glance because it's not exactly a burgeoning market I mean if you look at the finances of many leagues around Europe the income that clubs make from the to the value of TV deals the matchday income is, is absolutely minimal it's negligible at best um, and you know I mean I, I guess this might sound a bit of an off uh, left field suggestion, but I'd almost argue they'd be better off looking at somebody like Chitanova, somewhere with a really, really strong academy, even stronger academy than almost anywhere else. Um, 
Ufa itself, um, Bashkortostan, is not exactly a, a buzzing financial industrial area. So I can't quite see the appeal of the place. But um, from Ufa's point of view, you definitely can understand it, can't you? Because I think this is one of the weaknesses, and this is in a, a broader sense, of Russian football, is the lack of investment, private investment, in football. The number of clubs that rely on public investment of, of local and regional governments to fund them is quite frankly disturbing because if you are a if you're an official running for election and you, you are voted in as regional governor and you look at the, the state budget, what are you going to do? If you've got uh, this much money, say whatever amount of money it is for a football club and you need to build more hospitals and schools, you're going to divert it towards hospitals and schools quite rightly. It shouldn't be public funded, in my view. So it's quite exciting as a prospect to think, well, what is the potential? Ufa already have proven that they have a brilliant scouting system and are good at trusting youth and with a fair bit of substantial backing and networking of both of those two bids. Uh, it would make um, an interesting bit of reading. But I, again, from the investor's point of view, I don't quite, I don't quite see the benefit because it's not a place where you can just simply park players and, um, you know, things like visa issues can be resolved because Russia is very a very difficult place to play as a, as a foreigner. The culture, the language is different. The, you know, your uh, residency rules are very, very strict. So it's not like Belgium, which has been used by many clubs from around the world for that sort of reason. So I don't see it happening. But if it did, I'd be extremely excited. Yeah, I think it is exciting for Rufa. But could them, they themselves maybe push back on this? I mean, either club, if it's whether it's CFG or Red Bull, mm. both would require a, a whole like rebrand of the football club. Now, obviously, Rufa have a very short history. They were founded only in 2009. So it's not like a big issue like SV Makrenstadt being just dismantled yeah. and turned into RB Leipzig. So it's not that big of an issue in terms of the history. And I, with, without trying to put words in UFA fans' mouth, I could imagine that not many of them would be possibly too bothered about that. But to open this up first to yourself, Andrew, and for both of you, is would UFA not maybe the state put, be pushing back? Could this be maybe a difficult deal to do? Didn't Andrew, you've well, it's, it's a very it's a very good question, James. I mean, I if I was in if I was in Ufa's shoes as a director of a club or president of a club or involved in the club in any way whatsoever, I would be absolutely over the moon at this prospect and I would be pushing for it wholeheartedly because the genu the potential in Russian football to make the step up from well firstly from second tier to, to the Premier League, but also from Premier League to European challenger is not that big a step. If you think that Arsenal Tula right now, like we mentioned, they're seventh in the table. They have had not exactly a huge amount of financial input. And yet they're, they're two points off, Europe, potentially, off European football. Now, Ufa, with a bit of more, a bit more solid income uh, and a, an expanded scouting network, they could quite feasibly make themselves into European challenges. So if I was the club, I would say, well, I mean, I can't really see a downside for the club themselves. The only downside I see really is the other side of it, like I mentioned, from the investors' point of view. But, you know, they're the ones who are spending the money. They probably wouldn't have to invest a huge amount of money. And perhaps that's what makes it attractive. 
you know, if you're going to, you know, if you're um, taking over, investing in an Austrian football club like Red Bull Salzburg, then that would take a lot more money than it would to invest significantly in Ufa. So maybe that is the simple appeal. I don't know. David, what do you think? Do you think it's maybe shrewd investment from the investors' point of view, from City Football Group or Red Bull, or do you think they'll be best off looking elsewhere? Well, I think uh, there's certainly a lot of reasons for and against for and against it. Um, whether the fact that um, Ufa aren't selling a controlling stake in the club is a big deal breaker is you know remains to be seen. But I know that the government, or what I've read, I don't know, don't know if it's true, but I've read articles. Um, in the Bashkiri media saying that the state of Bashkortostan would offer other business incentives to Red Bull if they were to be willing to invest like other sporting events incentives and other business incentives in the region. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily even just be a footballing purchase if, if it came down to Red Bull. Obviously, City Football Group um, are a football, football uh, corporation entirely, as it says in the name. So it, it might be slightly different there. Um, and I know that Ufa have got their concerns about what would happen to their current existing um, academy setups there and um, you know youth football schools that they sponsor around the region if if they were to get an investment like this. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm in I'm in agreement that you know it would be a fantastic thing for the club and um, general Russian responses. You know, when I see comments on the bottom of these articles on some of the big sport websites, they're, you know, they're all for it. Whether they're supporting UFA or not, they think it's going to be a big boost to the league. So, um, so yeah, I think it would be fantastic. I think ordinarily, if this was my club, my local club, Sutherland, I would push back. But when it comes to being a little bit less subjective, more subjective, really, and looking at it overall, any privatisation in the Russian Premier League is is always good. The less state-sponsored clubs and state-owned clubs we have, the better. And a yeah. little bit of restructuring helps that, no matter what. Now, speaking of restructuring, two more sides who have underwent restructuring ownership changes face off on Sunday too. Local play Orenberg in Moscow. And, and, and of course, during the break, Logo took the controversial decision to part ways with the legendary manager Yuri Samin. Now, he's been replaced yeah. by the Serbian Marko Nikolic, who's previously boss at Partizan, and for Hervar of Hungary, some of which may know as FC Vidi, and before being sacked in November. Now, Andrew, coming to you first, how do you see this managerial change and getting rid of such a huge figure in Samin affecting locomotive? This is going to sound odd, but I actually think it's a it's a good decision. Um, now, when you get rid of a club legend, it's very, very hard to just disassociate such a name with the club. But Yuri Semin is 73, and I don't see a lot of adaptability about his style of play. And I think Lokomotiv are good at containing teams, but really they don't, I, in my opinion, they don't unleash the potential of the attacking talent they have there. Um, and I think with Marco Nikolic, I haven't, I haven't watched his teams closely, but I do know he has an extremely good reputation especially in Hungary. I spoke to one, well, David, in fact, uh, on social media, spoke to uh, a well-respected Hungarian journalist who said he's he's considered one of the best managers they've had in recent times there. And I think at some point it had to happen. At some point, Lokomotiv did need to move on. And I think it actually is not a bad opportunity to do it. 
you may some people may disagree with that given that you know Champions League group stage football is on the line they're, they're level on points at the moment with Krasadar and it's, it's on a knife edge there um, but uh, look I mean what can, what can you say the, this is the pre-season really, yeah. we mentioned there are only going to be nine days before next season that's not a pre-season that's just simply one week break this is a better time if any I would say to bring a new guy in I think it could be interesting uh, Benedict Hervedes leaving I don't think is too much of a loss yes he's experienced but I, I think he's got the turning circle of the QE2 so I don't <laughs> think their defence is going to suffer Murido Sequeira I think is a far far better long term prospect so I actually am reasonably positive about this I think it could be a very positive change for them It's a bit of a shame that Hervedes was never really a success at local with such a bad turning circle you'd think he'd be good on tracks <laughs> <laughs> But Loco are going to restructure not just the manager, but if rumours are to be believed, former Barcelona midfielder Jose Marie Baquero was set to joining as sporting director. So I think that this isn't a snap decision of any form of Simeon. I think, as you said, he's a 73-year-old. There's going to be a very short nine-day break in between this season and next season due to the coronavirus outbreak and delay. So they have basically just experienced this sort of like as and seeing this as like a whole pre-season it, it's a restructure and it makes complete sense they've lost to quite a few players of late so there's an aging squad but they're, they're slowly sort of restructuring that aging they're getting rid of people like Igor Denisov Hervedes as you mentioned Semin 73 is going to be replaced by a, a young and up-and-coming and hungry manager David do you think that local will kind of be all right and move on and um, the next phase? Yeah, yeah, you'd, you'd expect so. I know in the very short term, both the Moranchik brothers, I think, are injured for the next few games, which will be a be a big loss. But they've got the talent there in that squad and they've had an excellent season. I think, um, you know, when you take Zenit as an outlier at the top, nine points clear, I think uh, Lokomotiv have had an excellent season. They've, especially uh, in the league, but also in Europe. Um, granted, Russia had a bad season in general, but compared to last season... Uh, Locomotive really put up a good fight in Europe this year. Um, and yeah, I mean, with the Maratric Brothers, I think out for about a month. Once they're back, they can, you know, you know that team is good enough to do anything in, in domestic terms. Um, so yeah, you sort of, it'll be interesting to see how they get on under this new guy, under the new manager, Nikolic, but you, you, you'd back them with that squad to at the very least always be there to have a go in the near future anyway. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, you mentioned, I mentioned myself before that Spartak have got quite a strong spine of their team. Well, if you look at Spartak's team and compare spine of their team and compare that to Locos, Locos just blows it out of the water. I mean, Gregos Kachoviak and Dmitry Baranov is probably one of the most effective and destructive and flamboyant midfield partnerships in the whole of the RPL mm-hmm. right now. Probably apart from just Zenit is the only one that's stronger. So, of course, the Moranchuks will be a huge miss, but they have found other ways of being able to grind out results this season, and that's what champions elect or champions or at least the best elite teams can do, and something that Spartak themselves, to compare directly, haven't been able to do this season whatsoever. And I think Semin, obviously, leaving will have like a short-term effect on the squad, as is with any manager of such a stature leaving. But I don't think it'll be Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson, car crash-like. In any way, it couldn't but, be that bad. No, <laughs> but moving on to Logos' opponents, Orenburg, they've had a quite a difficult time of late. Actually, they've fallen down to 13th now into the table. 
and David the potentially or have already lost the leading goal scorer and one of the best players in the, during the. Yeah, that's right. Um, Georgi Despotovic um, decided to um, up and leave at the end of his contract. Um, he he's you know he's been there leading like this season. He scored a lot of goals for them, and uh, considering their form had dipped of late, you wonder how they'll get on without without that goal scoring sort of. Uh, to fire them forward. Um, there have been rumours that he'd been linked maybe to go off to Cisco and join them, uh, but I think it's more likely he might go to Turkey. Um, so yeah, big loss for them up front, you know. Uh, they've got to then fall back onto uh, Joel Femio and Mamadou Silla, who we've had an interview with up on the site, I believe, um, quite recently. Um, but yeah, they're bad form and the loss of their big striker, I think they're going to be in for a tough time. And this is why I said earlier, I think they could be one of the clubs who's going to look in for that one of those bottom two places. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. They've, they've only won two of the last nine games. And although the big reason for this result was Kokorin's sort of resurgence with Sochi, but Sochi actually thrashed Orenberg 5-1 at home in, in the few little games that were had during the what should have been the old winter break. So I, th- I agree. I think Orenberg are in possibly massive trouble for the rest of the season. And I think that's one of the big reasons why they won't go down is probably because either there will only be the bottom two, Krilia and Akhmat, or just the bottom one of Akhmat going down. And I'm going to back Akhmat to get relegated purely out of my pure hatred for Ramzan Kadyrov and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> that's understandable anyway. Yeah, that's good with me. have <laughs> got no yeah, likeable got players who, either. You've got, you got to remember who his best friend is though, James. And uh, his best friend, I'm sure, will give him a favour. The one he celebrates birthdays with, with world global celebrities on uh, on the pitch but uh, yeah I don't think there'll be there'll be uh, plenty of people who won't be crying too much if it were Akhmat who went down Den- Denis Glushikov no. well he is leaving Akhmat at the end of the season as well and hopefully what he done at Spartak won't get another game in any RPL team but and rounding up the week will be Krasnodar versus Dinamo now two clubs for once have enjoyed actual quiet breaks especially in terms of Dinamo's turbulent recent history now, Krasnodar themselves were actually thrashed 4-1 by Sochi just last week in their fight, like a little quick pre-season, if you can call it that, friendly. And suffered somewhat for a transitional season this year, do you think? Or at least wrecked by injury. While Dynamo sit pretty at sixth, which is probably the best performance for a very long time in the, at this point of the RPL. And they mm. themselves actually defeated Spartak 4-1 in a little friendly game last week. but Which was the second half as youngsters, but the one quite convincingly and Clinton and Jay scored two goals and hopefully could get a bit of form going for Dinamo. Now, Andrew, what do you think has been going on with Dinamo this year? Are you impressed by the, the form? Oh, I'll I tell you what, I have been. And the um, thing is, we've got to go back to, to tell the full context of it. You've got to go back to four or five years ago when they were hit by the financial fair play regulations and they had to sell off all their ludicrously uh, paid stars, they took their relegation, well I say they took the relegation it, it, it involved them being relegated because they lost all the best players they went down and Dinamo, you've got to remember, they've just won the youth championship and they had just won the youth championship two years in a row when they went down so they started blooding a lot of their younger players, they came back up and yeah okay, they didn't make any huge waves in the first two or three years when they were back up but now that they have basically the period over which financial fair play is judged, enough time has elapsed so that they can now start investing more money again. 
Um, we know they are very, very well backed by one of your favourite businessmen, uh, James, uh, Sir Mr. <laughs> Rottenberg, or his contemporary, shall we say. Um, they brought in Maximilian Philip, who has he's he's a bit of a languid player, I find, but he's a very effective one. Um, bringing Komlachenko is a huge, huge um, upgrade. They've got a really good goal scorer there. Uh, Skopinsev on the left left side, left wing almost at times this season. I think they look a really good side. Genuinely, very well organised side. And I I want to see them do well. Um, but I do, I still think they are, although they're ahead of Spartak in the table, I actually think Spartak are further ahead in the race to return to their best, if that makes any sense. So I think Spartak have a better, better team at the moment. Um, and under Tedesco, if he stays, uh, I think it could be Spartak could be ahead of them. But Dinamo, a very, very good side. They are actually, they picked up, uh, I think, second most points in the last nine games. Um, so they they have some, they have some backing. They have some backing on and off the pitch. And I think they could cause Krasnar problems, but Krasnar are a very, very good side. They very rarely lose at home. I think they've only lost once at home since October 2018. And I don't see Dinamo winning, but, you know, I have to see. Um, I think Krasnar probably will edge this one. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I do agree massively that Komlachenko has been a great going to be a great signing for them. Obviously, it's early days yet. He's only started two games for them signing, signing just during the winter break, but you just um, he's, he's 24 now. He's top goal scorer over in over for Mlada Boliosov, absolutely scoring for fun. I think he got what 28 goals overall last season, and I'm, I was surprised to be honest that nobody looked at him earlier. And like Zenit had seen yeah. that Zuba's contract was running out, it hasn't yet. It could still could a little bit murky waters in that one. But why didn't they look ahead and go for somebody like Komlachenko to be a potential replacement? Not even a replacement, just like backup. Just like they did with Zabalotini. They did that with Zabalotini, who's bang average at best. But they didn't quite look ahead to Komlachenko, as Dinamo were the ones who were willing to take a chance on him. Paid three and a half million euros, which not the smallest amount of money for a team who have been going through their issue recently. But still, it's it's a pretty much a bargain. Yeah. But they've managed to keep a lot of the players together this season, which is quite a big one. They've had they've been relatively un, quite unsettled by injuries. Unfortunately, unlike Krasnodar, who's just wrecked, absolutely wrecked the season with injuries. And there's been news of another one, if I'm right, to Victor Klaassen, David. Well, I think it's just a relapse of his previous injury. Uh, the new injury, I think, that they've got is uh, Uros Spajic, who, after a pretty shaky first season uh, when he moved to Russia, uh, has had a really good season this time around. Um, but I think he's he's due to be out into the rest of the, for the rest of the season, like Klaassen. Um So, yeah, that's two... You know, who if they were both fit would be first names on the on the team sheet who were gonna miss the rest of the season, which would be a big shame. Um but they've got they've got players waiting in the wings ready. Um before the winter Blake uh, break we saw uh midfielder Chernikov, um who was getting some minutes and looking quite promising. Um so we could he see him come in and play play a bit more before the rest of the season. Um and especially with the extra addition of Two more substitutes. Um, I think we'll definitely see more of their academy players get some get some minutes. Uh, also, including the fact that the Feniel has obviously been cancelled, so there'd be nowhere else for them to play. Um, so I think we'll see certainly see Krasnar uh, uh, dip into their academy and and uh, blood a few more players before the season's out. When you combine all those factors together, 
yeah, that's always kind of credited as like most the most impressive thing about them is the facilities they've got, the academy, just the strike rate of success that they can get there at the academy, the the beliefs that they instill there. Do you not think that Krasnodar themselves could be maybe a more attractive option than Ufa for City Football Group of Red Bull, or would the would Galitsky push back on that? Yeah, you'd imagine that. Um, yeah, Galitsky has too big of a, a grasp over it. You know, that's his project. That's his pet project. You know, he's the he's rich enough to back it as it is. You know, he's got. He's already given them basically pretty much everything Krasnodar could ever ask for with the the facilities that they've got down there. Um, so no, I think uh, I think it would have always been a bit too much. You know, you'd you'd surprised that maybe they wouldn't go for a you know a team in Moscow, but you'd then struggle to come up with pros and cons for the teams there. So out of all the teams in Russia, maybe Ufa is is the one that you could lean on. Yeah. So. Do you think that Krasnodar, obviously, they're now what nine points behind Zenit and in third place, just behind goal, locomotive and goal difference? Any bold predictions, maybe, for the for the championship going ahead? Do you think Krasnodar could catch Zenit, or will Zenit walk away from it now, David? Oh, I think it's it's Zenit in the bag. Um, yeah, after the winter break, they were looking they were looking excellent, and with Zuber and Absmoon still fit, um, you can't see anything else but them keeping keeping that gap up for the rest of the season. I think it will just be a uh, direct fight out now between Loco and uh, Krasnodar for that um, second place and automatic group stage spot, which um, you know Krasnodar desperately needed last year as they fell into qualifying and didn't make it. You know, they had a cracking two-leg win against Porto and then dropped out against Olympiacos. Um, so if they could get directly into the group stage for the first time ever, it'd be a huge thing for the club. Andrew, how about yourself? Do you think Zenit walk away with it as well? Yeah, I think they will. And we we've seen what they're like when they're not under a great deal of pressure. They they, they when they when they need to face up with a big team, they do tend to show up. But when they're not under pressure, they they coast through games. They drew two games nil nil um, uh, at the beginning of the spring part of the season. And I can see them drawing quite a few games and comfortably getting over the line. Got to remember as well, they got five games away from home. They've got to play Krasnodar away from home. That could be quite an interesting game. If they don't get a win against Tiska, hypothetically, this weekend, and then perhaps draw a free, you know, free draw away to Tambov, I don't know, and then they come into the game against Krasnodar, suddenly they're only four or five points ahead and Krasnodar win, then they've still got to play Akhmat away, they've still got to play Rostov away in the last game of the season. Technically, you never know, but realistically, it's Zenit in the bag, yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty much hard to look past that. It's just a steamrolling through most other teams this season. Like last year, the the big thing that they haven't suffered under was the November crisis, the winter crisis that they, they used to always have in seasons past. And last year, they ground through that and just kept seeing out 1-0 wins and grinding out those important victories. And I think Zenny still do it again. David, maybe any early predictions for relegation or is it a bit early for that yet? Um. Well, as I say, I think I think Orenburg are my pick for relegation. Um, I think uh, Krillia will be okay. I'd like Akma to go down, but I'm not sure they will. I think uh, they've got enough decent, experienced players in that squad to probably grind out results, um, especially in the games against the, the smaller teams. But obviously, they have had a poor season. Um, so you can never say anything about them. Um, but my, my money, if I had to put money on, would be on Orenburg, I think, to go down. And Andrew, how about yourself? 
Yeah, actually, I agree entirely with David on that one. Uh, Ollenberger, my favourites um, to finish bottom for table. The thing is, you got to, they're, they're backed by subsidiaries of, of Gazprom, and effectively, they're the third team in the Gazprom family. Um, Sochi are clearly the flavour of the month um, in that respect. Despotovic leaving is a huge, huge blow. Um, and realistically, you, you look at them, they concede a lot of goals. I think I'm right in saying they've conceded at least one in every single away game this season. Um, and part of that is because they haven't been playing uh, former Fekar Tumen legend Savary Kozlov enough. Um, but other than that, you know, if they start playing him, they might survive. But in all seriousness, though, I genuinely don't see... I agree with David. I think Ahmed have enough experience to stay up. I cannot see Rubin staying down there much longer. I think they will be end up looking comfortable in mid-table, actually. They've got the youth. Um, clearly, I think, just about will do enough. So, I actually am worried about Orenberg most of all. I really would tip them for relegation. Yeah, likewise. If you look at the two teams, I mean, I think it's between Akhmat Krilia and Orenberg myself. And if you look at compare Krilia and Orenberg, is that although Sobolev leaving Krilia on the face of it is possibly a bigger loss with the impact he had, Krilia have got players who can fit in. They've got people like Anton Zinkovsky, who's a very talented young player who can make as important an impact on games. Orenberg, mm. you look through the squad and you just fail to see who's going to be real, that that game changer, that sort of provide that spark that all teams near relegation will need to get those vital results to stay up. So I've got to agree. I think it's also Orenberg looking looking in trouble. They're just constantly looking over the shoulder and in a little bit of free fall right now. And that's pretty much it for all the games covered this week. Now, finally, we're going to be getting back into some RPL action. And as always, that'll be available to stream live on the Russian Premier League channel on YouTube. There'll be two games in English and all eight will be in Russian. It hasn't been announced which two yet will be streamed in English, but you can pretty much best bet that Zenit Siska will be one of them. And as always, you can find coverage of Russian football and whole at the, our website, russianfootballnews.com. Follow us on Twitter, Russian Russ Football News. David, where can we find yourself online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at RFN underscore David. And Andrew, yourself on Twitter and elsewhere, maybe? Yeah, um, on Twitter at Andrew M-I-J Flint. And I, I post the old comment and video of whatever's going on with Russian football this weekend. Andrew, because it's like the, the first big one back, we'll let you let you this week just plug something else possibly that you might have going on, like a big website, maybe? Yeah, that was very kind of you. Yeah, we I've been running a, a, another website, um, Heart of Football, where we're trying to tell go against the clickbait grain. So if you're sick of watching reading the same best five, best ten of this, you know, we like to do interviews with youth youth coaches and authors of interesting books and stuff. So yeah, if you have a look at um Heart of Football, um uh, sorry, Heart of Dot Football is our website address. Have a look, you start find some interesting stories there. Um so yeah, that's something else. So that's heart of dot football, and there's actually one of our we share writers that Richard Pike also writes for for heart yeah. of football as well as RFN, and I think there's some really good emotive content up there as well, which is is nice to see. You know, in a world of <laughs> a not very uh, nice world out there right now, <laughs> but um, that's pretty much been the latest latest episode of the RFN podcast. I've been James Nichols at James Nichols on Twitter. I hope you all stay safe out there. Uh, solidarity to those in protest to try and make a better world right now around us. And goodbye for now.
Веди его, беги, точнее его ударь. Но мяч берет в ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, Быстрота, увлечение, расчет. 